Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Prose. Casper, I just got a wonderful, wonderful haircut. It looks so good. Thank you. I feel great with it. But I cut off over a foot of hair, and that means my long hair was sort of pulling my curls in one way. And now that I have short hair, I need a totally different hair care routine. Mm. Luckily, pros is made for people not hair and skin types, personalization is rooted in everything they do from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. And so I use the review and refine feature and I was like, yes, I still want vegan hair care products. Yes, I still want to smell like a lavender field, (laughs) but my hair is no longer long. It is short to medium length. Please send me a different formula of shampoo and conditioner. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash Harry Potter. So you get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash Harry Potter. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash Harry Potter. Chapter 11, The Dueling Club. Harry woke up on Sunday morning to find the dormitory blazing with winter sunlight and his arm reboned but very stiff. He sat up quickly and looked over at Colin's bed, but it had been blocked from view by the high curtains Harry had changed behind yesterday. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. I'm Matt Potts. And I'm Casper Tekile. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Well, Matt, we are so excited to welcome Casper back onto the podcast, but we've played a little prank on him and we're making him tell a story on the theme of shame. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh, sure. I love Harry Potter and Sacred Text. I'll come back. And you're like, you're revealing shame. (laughs) Let us shame you. So as a little child growing up in England, one of the great joys was returning to Holland in the summer to see family. You know, we would go see my grandparents, extended aunts and uncles, and always part of the summer tradition was going to camp. This was not an American style, like get rid of your children for eight weeks camp. It was a 10-day in the wilderness camp, you know, pooping in a hole, washing in the river, like living in a tent. It was like real camping. And... Every year, the camp included a triathlon, usually around day six or seven of the 10-day experience. I hated, hated this triathlon. First of all, swimming. That means being in a swimsuit. 
not comfortable with that. Uh-uh. Then comes cycling. All the Dutch boys have their own bicycles, and I'm on like some borrowed granddad bike, so I'm slow and bad at it. Uh-uh. Then comes running, where I get lapped by the other children and feel just embarrassed and everything bad. Uh-uh. So it's like, it's not just one bad thing. It's just like a triple sandwich, right? There's no good two bits before and after. It's just all three courses are awful. <sighs> Still have some feelings about this experience. <laughs> so the thing that I'm interested in, as I felt shame throughout the entire experience of that triathlon, was that afterwards, I would feel really fine. In fact, I hated the first seven days of this 10-day camp, but I loved the last three. Like the last three were so wonderful that I would want to come back again next year and I'd be willing to endure the awfulness because I knew the last three bits were so much fun. Now, I I don't want to set up some sort of like logical system that like, oh, once you work through the shame, you get to a happy place. But I am really interested in like Harry gets exposed in this chapter as a parcel mouth, right? Like everyone can see that he has this, what do we call it? Talent, curse, gift? I don't know. He has this ability. He didn't know he had skill, right? He didn't know he had this. But once it's out there, like he gets tainted with this story, right? That he must be the heir of Slytherin. This rumor starts spreading that he probably is the one who, you know, is releasing the monster, or maybe he is the monster. Like, something bad is associated with this skill. But I'm curious, like, what's on the other side of getting stuck in a shame moment? So that's what I'm really interested in talking about today as we read this chapter through the theme of shame. I mean, one of the things I'm interested in talking about in this chapter is, like, the relationship of shame to other negative emotions, right? Your story is really illuminative. I wonder how well it illuminates what's going on with Harry. I think that idea of transitioning beyond this moment of embarrassment or shame or whatever is interesting, and and we can ask that question about Harry. But there's so much of fear wrapped up in their relationship to Harry, right? And I'm guessing the Dutch boys on their yeah. bikes were not afraid of you on the grand on the grandpa <laughs> bike. Shame makes others small, right? Whereas fear, you turn yeah. away from the others because they become l- larger or imposing or intimidating somehow, and you turn away from them. But in your example, your adorable example, like folks are turning away from you because you're small and insignificant. And and that's yeah. like that's 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 a subtle difference. But I think it's an important we need to track that distinction. Like where is the line? Because in either case, folks are turning away. And actually you can think of things like like homophobia or transphobia, which have roots in fear, but which are also shame based, right? And so like that it's mm. not a clean distinction in by any means, right? Mm. And so it, it definitely overlaps. Speaking etymologically, if I may. Uh, the word Please. the word shame actually comes from a Germanic root, which has to do with covering, like modesty. Mm. It actually originally had to do with covering mm. one's genitals out of modesty or just covering <laughs> oneself in general, like like turning inward, covering yourself out of fear of being seen or something. And there's something really illuminating about that root as well. Like, I do not want to be seen. There's something about myself that wants me to turn away from relationship. Right? Not just others are turning you away, but you are turning yourself away from being seen by others. And that's actually a really crucial part of the story because we would sleep in tents of like eight kids with one leader. And so it wasn't just an individual race. Like in the triathlon, you were also part of a team. Mm. And that was such a big part of it, Matt, was like turning away because I was also letting other people down, right? This yeah. like imagined hmm. team of the tent, which obviously I don't care about. But like at that point, 
you know, it's all embedded within relationships. And so you're like, you're not, you're not just, I wasn't just ashamed for me. It was like, I was ashamed for them, for them. Yeah. Ugh. Well, I'm really excited to jump into this conversation. I always think of shame as the emotion that lasts the longest. Like, I am not still proud of the papers that I got an A on in high school, but the moments I felt ashamed of in high school can still make me close my eyes mm-hmm. and go, oh, like shame is definitely the feeling that has like the longest lasting aftershocks in my life. Well, Matt, I hope you feel no shame as you do the 30 second recap. Do you know what? I'm I'm at peace with the 30 second recap now. Okay. On your mark, get set, go. Okay, Harry wakes up and Colin is is hidden and he goes to look for Hermione and Ron and he finds them in the girls' bathroom where they were making polyjuice potions, but there are some ingredients are are missing and so they decide they have to steal them from from Snape and then uh and then they g- go to, to potions class and they cause a ruckus and throw a firecracker and the swelling uh, stuff and it makes everyone swell and Snape is very mad but Hermione gets the ingredients and then they they go and and uh, and uh, and and Harry oh no not a time and Justin especially is petrified and it's Harry's fault but it's not really sorry I lost like the last third of the chapter I was like wait what happens after they get the (laughs) ingredients I know that all I could remember was Justin Finch Fletchley gets gets petrified so it was good that i only had three seconds left because that's all i remembered okay here we go vanessa three two one go so something that matt happened to miss was the dueling club gilderoy lockhart is like we should have one even though he doesn't know how to duel and they have a dueling club and snape is being abusive to neville again and publicly humiliating him and draco and harry get partnered and snape teaches draco how to shoot a snake out of his wand and then harry is like snake please don't attack justin finch fletchley and everybody's like oh, he's a parcel mouth he's going to try to kill justin because justin said that he was down for eaten and harry is definitely the grandson of slytherin what's it called the heir the heir of slytherin the heir of slytherin, of slytherin. that's much punchier than the grandson of slytherin <laughs> <laughs> yes casper i'm counting you in Let's do this. Three, two, one, go. Okay, so Harry wakes up in the hospital wing and is like, oh my gosh, my arm is better. Thank goodness. And then they're in potions and the whole, like, Hermione does the grabbing of the ingredients. Excellent. Um, But then comes the dueling club. And this is where we first really hear Expelliarmus because Snape disarms um, Lockhart, which is this very important spell, of course, that Harry learns from Snape. Let's remember where that spell comes from. Um, And then the whole uh, snake thing happens and it's like, oh, scary. And then Harry sees Hagrid, but they stumble over the body of just and Finch Fletley, who's being petrified. Ah, so good. I Matt, good. we just need three people to do the recaps. Matt, I was really struck by that connection between fear and shame because the place where my mind went throughout this chapter was Ginny. We see her early on in the chapter where she's described as both distraught and having nightmares. And, you know, rereading this, obviously, for the umpteenth time, like, I'm really clear about why that's the case. Mm. And she's, I think, experiencing both shame yeah. and fear mm-hmm. and in the sense that, like, she's going inward, right? She's not telling anyone. But the, the dreams, I think, the nightmares are so illustrative of that kind of going inward. It's like eating her up on the inside. But she's also afraid at the consequences of what might happen if she was honest about the the little she understands or the fragments that she has in her 
mind, you know, that she has in her recall. Yeah. And I'm wondering, like, is that is that a mix of fear and shame? Is she paralyzed by shame? Like, because she doesn't do anything that we can see? I'm just wondering if you can help me, like, untangle. Yeah. I, because I think she's afraid of the consequences. Yeah, yeah. Like, that, that feels really real for her. I mean, for me, I think Ginny's the clearest example of shame in this chapter, right? Because she's becoming more and more isolated, yeah. right? Uh, you can tell. And even the the text is isolating her because yeah. it's making the reader not see what's going on. Like, there's there are feints in the text. Like, oh, Ginny was distraught because she sat next to Justin in Charms, right? We know that by now, those of us who read it before know that's not the real reason. But actually, the, even the narrator gives us this reason to to show how inward she's turned, how isolated Ginny's mm. become, right? I think Ginny's shame is caught up in her fear of others, fear of what may happen to her, fear of what she may have done, all these things, right? But with Harry, if he's sh- ashamed, it's because others fear him. Does that make sense, right? And so it's like, it's not yeah. like Harry's not afraid of the others, although I think he's afraid of being outcast and isolated as well, of course, right? And that's probably yes. the degree to which he does feel some shame here or does feel isolated. But no one's afraid of Ginny right now, right? Even though given what she is, what she has opened up, right? Like they should be afraid at least of what she's done. She's afraid of what she's done, which is why she's ashamed, why she turns inward, why she... I mean, this is, I think, really the crucial characteristic of shame is it just, just it isolates one. It, it forces relationships to become broken or estranged or whatever. And then there's no one there to help, right? Yeah, yeah. Where shame begins is is really complicated because I don't want to say it's Ginny's fault for being becoming isolated, like, right? And I wouldn't want to say those who have been shamed by others that their isolation is their own fault. But there is a turning inward which further isolates it, kind of like in our anxiety conversation a few weeks ago. Shame has this insidious quality of folding upon itself and amplifying itself and making itself worse. It's got a snowballing effect that is yeah. is difficult to undo without like a pretty drastic radical action which is you know what it's going to take in this book and what really struck me is that we see the twins teasing her yeah. which you know by all accounts usually breaks through any yeah. of that kind of barrier of like oh i'm a little down or i failed my test or like i don't feel good you know yeah. usually that familial joking kind of opens the relationship and brings them back together but it doesn't work here and i think that points to what you're what you're describing that there's something bigger or deeper or more more serious going yeah. on and i love that point that the text itself obscures her you know that's happening for plot reasons yeah. but our interest is of course the way in which we look at the world and and how it mirrors what's happening in the text and i think yeah for you know people make themselves small when they don't want to be seen and so it demands more curiosity and attention and, and detailed, like an inventory of like, where is everyone? And, and you know, we see Percy saying, well, I'll, I'll tell Mrs. Weasley. And I feel like Mrs. Weasley is the only person who would care enough and who would be seeing Ginny. But within a system like yep. a school, it's easy for her to fall through the cracks. Well, a moment that I also think is a missed opportunity is Hagrid with the dead chickens. Right. Hagrid comes in pretty hard with a theory, right? He's like, you know, I have these dead chickens. I have to go get permission from Dumbledore to put some sort of protective spell. And it's either a fox or this other thing that's attacking the chickens. And I also think that there's something missed there of of Hagrid admitting he doesn't know what's killing the chickens. And therefore, like a little bit of curiosity because 
there are all of these things that allow Jenny to continue to self-isolate. Murdering chickens is, is something that she is being forced to do, but it is also could be a cry for help and that nobody is seeing. Hmm. Yeah, you know, Vanessa, we've spoken in a previous episode just about how how much of care just means paying adequate attention, like just right. stopping and thinking. And this is exactly what you and Casper are talking about, because the explanations that the text give us are all reasonable. Yeah, you would right. freak out if the person who sat next to you in charms got petrified, right? Like these totally. are all reasonable things. And it takes someone just taking a bit more time and actually giving a person the space and safety to reveal what else is is going on. I, I think this question of like relationship between shame and fear also, you know, to to your point, Casper, shows why Fred and George's technique in this case doesn't work because they're doing frightening things, right? Like Ginny's afraid of what's going to emerge from the walls of, of of Hogwarts and she sees creatures with boils and hair jump out at her. Like this is exactly the thing that she's scared of. So it's not the thing that breaks through, even if it is a tried and true technique. So again, as you both were saying, like this is just a reminder when people are turning inward to just pay more attention, to take an inventory, to not assume that the most obvious reasons or the most customary responses are going to be the ones that are useful, right? But to really... Yeah. If the if the problem is isolation, then the solution is to overcome that isolation, not to explain the isolation, right? Like it's actually to to make the connection, not just to understand why the connection's broken. So if that's the kind of outside in strategy, the other thing that is necessary is like an inside out strategy. Like Ginny is stuck in a story of like, if I say what I know, I will be punished mm. or bad things will happen. And I'm curious like I, I was thinking about a professional situation that is not my story to tell. So I want to be careful about how I situate it. But essentially, someone having claimed work as theirs in public later turned out to not have attributed it correctly. And having known that was true for a number of years while continuing to claim that work in public, what do you do when you're like three years into that? Right? Like your, yeah. your career, in a sense, is built on a lie that you know to be true. And so far, you haven't been found out. Like, I, I, I want to be careful about connecting that to Ginny, because, of course, it's not by her choice that these things have been happening. But nonetheless, there's a sense of like, there is no way out. I can only keep this to myself. Otherwise, worse things will happen. What, what do we do if we find ourselves in that situation? Because I sure know I've done things wrong that I was like, oh, it's better if I just keep silent about it, you know, <laughs> like I just, oh, it's too, I, my hands are clammy as I say that. And I don't even have a specific memory I'm thinking of. It's just that feeling that is so awful. Like, yeah, what's the inside out strategy when you know you've done something wrong and you don't think there's a way back? I mean, it takes courage, right? I mean, that's just, it's. Yeah, it's obviously to tell. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so here's a good distinction maybe from the chapter around those questions, right? Because with Ginny, we want Ginny to tell, right? But no one's really giving her an opportunity to tell, right there, Fred but, and George. Are... But isn't this, isn't this the most delicious thing about the whole situation? Because I bet she went to that diary and wrote about it. Like, yeah. I think she actually is probably telling someone who she thinks she can trust, but it turns out that's the very person who's making this happen in the first place. Yeah, that's fair. That is, that is, that is kind of the delicious irony. But I'm going to go a little bit outside the chapter, but right. The comparison I wanted to make was Harry does get a chance to say that he's hearing voices in the next chapter. Yeah. And Dumbledore actually pays attention and asks the question. Maybe you should have paid attention longer, but gives Harry the opportunity. 
But the possibility that Dumbledore might think that he's a Slytherin or that Dumbledore might think that he is the heir of Slytherin, he does become ashamed and doesn't have the courage to say, oh, you know what? Some weird stuff has been happening, Dumbledore. And that's like the moment when Harry, for all his courage, shame keeps him from having the necessary courage to actually maybe intervene in this situation Mm. earlier than, than they end up having to later. Can I, I'm going to try to take us somewhere else because, but I do want to make sure we're coming back to this question. I just think it might be illuminating, which is that sometimes shame is productive, right? And I wonder if, Casper, that's the case in, Mm. you know, your friend's work situation or your acquaintance's work situation, right? Like what we wish for Lockhart is just a little bit of shame, right? He's shameless. Yes. And so I'm wondering if there is something sometimes productive about shame, because I would love if when Snape knocked Lockhart on his butt, if Lockhart was like, oh my God, that was embarrassing. Maybe you should be leading this Severus (laughs) instead of being like, ha ha, I, you know, I let you do that on purpose, right? The shamelessness is also bad. Yeah, like, Lockhart knows he's a fraud, but he's found a workaround, which is stealing people's memory, right? Like, just undoing the thing that would give him away. And and attempting to gaslight everyone on a micro level. I mean, failing at it, it's not effective gaslighting because everybody is standing there being like, we saw what happened. But he's just still asking people to buy in to this, like, false narrative. So it's not just stealing memories on a minute-to-minute level. He's just lying to people and, like, living in his own little reality. There's so deeply no turning in that there's no self-reflection. I don't want people to feel shame, but I want them to be a little bit afraid of the fact that they could feel shame to prevent them from being Lockhart. Well, it gets to the question of you know, laws alone cannot govern a society, right? There's an enormous amount of kind of self-policing that we all do to not put other people in danger or, you know, whatever it is to keep things running smoothly, right? Queuing is an English national pastime, famously. And like, that's, we all know how to queue. And there's something, I find it maddening moving to America when queuing, I'm afraid, is not as clearly done here as it is back home. Yeah, so you you need those norms and, and that sense of if I don't do this, I will be ridiculed or I will be considered horribly rude by all these people that kind of keeps us within it. And yet at the same time, that can be weaponized, right? Like that isn't just about queuing politely for tickets for the train. That's about how people, you know, uh, experience desire or, or identity or there's there's so much that, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I totally see where you're coming from. And it's such a icy, icy ledge from which we can fall into a fiery pit of doom. Sure. That it it scares me to insist on shame. Well, like I said, right, like shame is my, is the feeling that lasts the longest and is, right, like it's the worst feeling I know. And yet shamelessness really repulses me. I think you're right. But I think that there's a subtle distinction, at least in the way we use the language of shamelessness, between just the, the, the absence of having shame Shamelessness is not doesn't just mean the quality of not being able to feel shame. It also means that your response to that quality of not being able to feel shame is is a particular kind of like narcissistic response, right? Like my dog does not feel shame, but <laughs> but builds relationship in really productive and and loving ways, right? Like Lockhart doesn't feel shame, but the way he responds to his isolation you know, others are, others think that he's shameful. 
the way he responds to that is just like to to use obliviating curses and to create a story about himself and to develop a bunch of empty celebrity based relationships, right? Like, and so like the shamelessness, it's not just the quality of not being able to feel it. There are all, it's also like in response to that quality of not being able to feel it, right? When we say shamelessness, it refers to a particular kind of self-obsessed or Mm. replacing real relationship with delusions of grandeur or whatever. But this, this, you know, this is sidestepping your really important question, which is like, you asked, what does shame produce? You could flip that question and say, like, what produces shame? And it's norms, right? And norms can be really useful in governing or, you know, secretly, hiddenly governing a people and making them function well. And they can also be incredibly exclusionary and harmful to folks who fall outside those norms and who are therefore shamed and become isolated, right? And so it's, yeah, I think your question is a great one, Vanessa. Like, it, it's very easy to say shame is a bad thing and really easy to see how norms often cause harm. But we also should pay attention to the way that norms actually bring people back in. Not folks like Lockhart, but other folks who maybe have done wrong, they find their way back by developing a relationship with the community again, right? And hopefully it's also stretched the community to come into new understandings of what the norms ought to be. So I have somewhere silly that I want to take us to in the text because I have this, it gave me a theory about shame. So Ron is sort of shamelessly in the girl's bathroom, right? Working on this potion. And I feel like in another context, Ron would actually be very embarrassed to be caught in a girl's bathroom, but he's vaguely Mm. fine with risking that here. And so I wonder if sometimes shame goes away with a sense of purpose where you're Mm. like, usually I would hate cutting in line, but my kid's bleeding. I need to go in the front of the line, right? Like yeah. whenever you have a very clear sense of purpose, I think shame has the potential of just completely evaporating. I think that's right. I mean, I think if shame is about falling outside of some governing norm, right? if you can root yourself in some other norm, which you think is a priority, right? Like I think Ron would say, yeah, Hermione's in danger and Draco is going to be the heir of Slytherin or whatever. Like he's like, this is obviously the bigger thing. So I'm willing to throw away some norms for the sake of this other value, right? right. And it's obviously he's not isolated in it either, right? He has others who are supporting this choice. And that can change, you know, just day to day. I feel this a lot with public transit and mask wearing. Like, you know, now and then there's someone who's not wearing a mask at all, or more frequently it's men who are like wearing the mask over their mouth while it's closed and they're breathing through their noses. I'm like, guys, we all know how it's designed to like just put the thing over your face. (laughs) And it it drives me insane. And most of the time I don't say anything, but there have been moments where I've said, excuse me, sir, like, do you have a mask? And they were like, no, I don't want to wear it. And I'm, oh, his response this particular time on a train was, no, I don't have one. And so I turned around to the carriage. I said, does anyone have a mask? And this older lady took out a whole bag of them who clearly had been in this situation before. I was like, I have plenty. And so, you know, we we asked him and his son to put on a mask. And because it wasn't just me, but there were multiple people involved, I think that's partly why they put it on. And then there were people, once they did that, who said thank you to the two mm. of us who had, you know, helped help that situation happen. But like most of the time, I just feel too isolated to try and like make something like that happen. So it's just interesting how like reaching for those norms of safety don't always feel possible, especially when you're alone. Yeah. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Pros. Casper, I just got a wonderful, wonderful haircut. It looks so good. Thank you. I feel great with it. But I cut off over a foot of hair, and that means my long hair was sort of pulling my curls in one way. And now that I have short hair, I need a totally different hair care routine. Mm. Luckily, Pros is made for people not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. And so I use the review and refine feature and I was like, yes, I still want vegan hair care products. Yes, I still want to smell like a lavender field, (laughs) but my hair is no longer long. It is short to medium length. Please send me a different formula of shampoo and conditioner. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash Harry Potter. So you get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash Harry Potter. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash Harry Potter. So I have one last question for the two of you, which is, I feel like Crab might be someone who is seen as a bully and who's not good in school. And he clearly did an excellent swelling potion because it gets blown up and everybody swells. (laughs) And so I was just wondering if you all thought that Would this be a moment of pride for him? Like, ha-ha, I did a good job. You all think I'm dumb and just muscles. Or would he be ashamed? Like, I did a good job, and now it's everywhere. I guess I don't know enough about the about potions to know if he did a good job. Like, is is a swelling solution a super easy potion? I don't know. Maybe maybe it was an easy day in potions. Maybe we're amidst a potions genius who is not being recognized, Vanessa. It could be. It could be. want to say crab i see you you (laughs) should be seen for more than your muscles you might be great at potions you know matt it's exactly that kind of joke that crab doesn't need in his life (laughs) crab i'm sorry that people like matt are trying to shame you for being big and strong keep working on your potions if somebody had encouraged him maybe he wouldn't become the wizard supremacist that he becomes later or maybe he's bullied someone in Slytherin who's good at potions to make his potion. Oh, yeah. Okay. I there buy you that go. Too. Put it past him. There you go. <sighs> we, we shall never know. Fair enough.
So this week we are doing a Havruta question. And I want to ask you this. It really came to me last night as I was pondering just the whole chapter. Is Tom Riddle succeeding or failing at this point in the book? We see how the basilisk has petrified, you know, Mrs. Norris in this chapter, Justin Finch-Fletchley, Colin Creevy. But like no one's been killed. And I'm curious is Tom A controlling the basilisk like like a laser and like really intentionally like take a left here and right at that sewer? Or is it just like this beast has a mind of its own? So that's kind of part A. But then I'm going to assume that it is kind of laser controlled with like the ghost of Tom Riddle. And is he therefore like avoiding killing people by making sure like the basilisk keeps its eyes closed or is like looking up at the ceiling because he doesn't want people to die and he's only trying to kill Harry? Or is he just, like, really, really unlucky and, like, not hitting a home run? Like, is he succeeding or failing? So I'm going to say he's failing. I think that Tom is, like, unable to handle the, you know, logistical challenges of both a basilisk and a Ginny and is, like, caught in multiple directions. Maybe he's also communicating with his, like, home soul Voldemort. Like, there's just, there's too much happening in a day for him to really plan out the right route and timing. And so he's, I mean, he's clearly not finding Harry, and he's just, like, running all around the castle. Like, I I just think he's much less, he's not the perfect villain that I had assumed he was. Like, he is behind schedule, screwing it up, (laughs) doesn't know how to make this work. (laughs) I think reveal so much about you that you're like he's failing because he's behind schedule (laughs) Casper you are so deeply wrong he is succeeding marvelously like terror is reigning at Hogwarts Mm. and the kids who aren't afraid are the Slytherins and that's that's really what he wants he wants to regain power he wants to regain a body but he wants to do that in order for pure blood wizards, whatever that means. He is not one to reign supreme. And a microcosm of what he wants is going on in Hogwarts. He wants Slytherins to be proud and everyone else to be scared. And mission accomplished, Mr. Riddle, sir. Yeah, I agree, Vanessa. He doesn't even want pure blood wizards to reign supreme. He wants himself to reign supreme, right? And right. and that means he needs everyone to be afraid of him. And I, I feel like Voldemort's ease with killing is not an end in itself. It's to make others afraid of him so he can have power. And the whole school's terrified. And you're right, the Slytherins are are not. So it seems to me it's working. I mean, and so the fact that he has not succeeded in killing these folks uh, t- has not compromised the fear in the school that significantly. So I think, I think he's doing a pretty good job. I think that the question that you're making me want to ask, Casper, is is Dumbledore succeeding, right? He's a headmaster of this school. And so, I, you know, Matt and I have talked about the fact that we think that he's sort of failing as a teacher, right? He is failing at keeping students safe. He's failing at communicating with parents, clearly, about what's going on. He's failing as an educator. But I wonder if Dumbledore sees himself as failing because he has this other mission of trying to defeat Voldemort. And so letting this happen a little bit and letting... Voldemort to sort of take a step out, right? I wonder if what Dumbledore is doing is to some extent smoking out Voldemort. And so Mm. I think, right, success has to be about what the ultimate goal is. And I think 
when people have more than one goal, it gets really confusing. And I feel like in my life, I often don't know what my goal is. Like, I'll just keep acting and then be like, what am I succeeding at right now? Like, what is what is the mission here? And checking in with myself is helpful. And so I'm, I'm wondering, yeah, if you all think Dumbledore is succeeding and if so, what's his mission? And I'm I guess I want to argue that maybe he is succeeding as a tactician because he thinks, you know, to our point about Ron earlier, he thinks that the more important mission is the Voldemort mission and not keeping children safe. This is going to bleed into the next chapter a little bit. Uh, But I have kind of like a, I think he's half succeeding, half failing right now. Right. And I want to call back to the end of book one when, when Harry asks him what he sees in the mirror and he gives an unserious response. Part of me wonders if he had answered honestly in that moment or told Harry a little mm. bit more, if in next chapter's moment, when ha- when Dumbledore says to Harry, do you have anything you need to tell me? If maybe Harry's more honest, right? Like yeah. if, if there had been more trust and more relationship built at that previous moment, then maybe Harry tells him exactly the information he needs in the next chapter and then... Dumbledore succeeding. And Dumbledore knows this too. Dumbledore knows that the, the best response to, to Voldemort is love and loving relationship and trusting one another. And had he done that better in the last book, he may have gotten a handle on what was going on at the school like seven chapters earlier. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. The question that's come up for me as we had this conversation is just, you know, how chaos is escalating at Hogwarts. I think of you know, just everything that's going on, people running out of the hallways, people being petrified everywhere. And so the question that I just was thinking of as you both were talking was, who does chaos serve, right? And it it always serves the people who are least susceptible mm-hmm. to it, which means people in power, right? Which makes me think in our own world, when we see people causing chaos, right? Those are the people who have the power, right? Or if you see people in power, you should expect them to cause chaos because chaos hurts everybody else except the people who can avoid the effects of it, right? I mean, as soon as you say chaos, I, of course, think of Littlefinger in Game of Thrones, who says chaos isn't a pit, chaos is a ladder. Yeah. So I do think there are people who can use chaos Absolutely. to get what they want. Absolutely. But I agree with you, there's probably some form of power, and most often it's just physical, like, brute force. Right, they know the way yeah. out, right? They know the way through the chaos, yeah. right? Yeah. And no, no one yeah. else does have a way out of it, yeah. Yeah, and I think that, you know, structures like a school can hold a certain amount of chaos, right? Like the kid who got turned into the badger in Transfiguration, like McGonagall's able to flip him back, right? He comes out into the hallway and he's got a stripe on his head of hair. But like she's been able to turn him back into a person, right? But this level of chaos, I mean, kids are literally tripping over Justin, right? Like he he's going to get further injured because of the petrification. So I also think that there's chaos within limits and the yeah. school should notice that it is outside of its ability to manage this level of chaos. Casper, thank you for leading us in Havruta and for your great and fruitful question. Always glad to help, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> this week's voice memo comes from Propungen. Hey, Vanessa, I am Prabhanjan from India. So I am new to listening to this podcast, but needless to say, I have grown up loving the Harry Potter books. I am 23 years old now, but as a kid, it was mainly the magic that fascinated me. As I grew and reread the books, I started to connect on an emotional level and relate quite a bit to some of the characters. 
In some ways, I relate to Severus Snape as well. And I grew to adore the person he is on the inside. I wanted to talk about this cold, devil-may-care appearance that he maintains on the outside in order to sort of conceal his vulnerable side from the world. It's almost as if he lives in denial of that side, though he has experienced love, loss, belonging and detachment firsthand. It's like he maintains this cold appearance externally because he's been hurt before by people and that doesn't quite allow him to trust anyone again. Not easily, at least. I'd be very interested to listen to what you think about this and what you think we should do if we find ourselves doing it. Thank you so much, by the way. I feel at home listening to you, Matt and Casper, dive deep into the books from a human aspect. I First of all, I just love... Thank you so much for acknowledging that I am the one true host and that Matt and Casper are merely <laughs> accoutrement. I really appreciate that acknowledgement. I'll take it. But I love this. I love this invitation to always like see ourselves in these difficult characters. I obviously really struggle with Snape, but I think that you're up to something really radical here, which is something that Casper led us to, I think, in like chapter two or three of our very first time going through these books, which is it's not how do we judge the Dursleys. It's what is the Dursley-ishness within ourselves. Whether or not I agree with your characterization of Snape, I think that this is a really difficult chapter to consider the goodness of Snape because he unleashes a snake into a dueling club. He bullies Neville in front of dozens of people. He's really he's really difficult, but Casper and Matt, I would obviously love to hear what you have to say. I mean, the, the thing that strikes me is like, because of the explosion in the potions classroom, like, Harry and his ability to, you know, read minds, like, he knows that there's something up, and maybe he can't read all the way into the plan, and all he knows is like, you have a plan to disrupt my classroom, you annoying little bratty boy. Like, yeah. <laughs> so I get that. And then also having to deal with an incompetent, attention-seeking colleague who you have to co-teach a class with. Is there anything worse? I don't think there is. Um, so honestly, I'm like, I'm just grateful it was only a snake. Like, there's so much. He could have unleashed a fire hose, right? Like, and he was like, the children could be healed by Pomfrey. Like, I just want to humiliate this absolute jerk face who like is just the most annoying person in the staff room and i can't wait till he leaves at the end of the year i mean i do love that you're pointing us to the fact that he does again right like he releases something that he knows he can control with the snake yeah yeah i think it's snape's problem in the dueling club is overconfident overconfidence i think he wants i think harry threw a firecracker into a pot like like it's lucky i mean we talked about this earlier in the episode it's lucky that crab's potion was a good potion because who knows what was in that <gasps> right. pot yeah totally like it, it's super super dangerous to explode a cauldron of of who knows what kind of potion in the classroom i think i think snape was overconfident in trying to, again i don't think that scaring a child with a huge snake is a great pedagogy <laughs> uh or a pedagogical approach but i think he's overconfident he does not anticipate that lockhart will intervene and mess everything up i mean i think i love that what you what you said vanessa and I want to thank uh, Propungen for for bringing this question to us and bringing this thought to me. I love that we said that Casper said in an early episode about sort of what's the Dursley-ish part of me. Like, Propungen, your voicemail really makes me ask myself, okay, what is the relationship between how I portray myself to the world and what's going on inside and why do I do that? And, hmm. and 
how does that serve me and how does it maybe um, cause at least discomfort, maybe even harm to others? And what can I do to mitigate all those things? So, you know, whether or not I have as much affection for Snape as as Casper or Papungin, <laughs> it absolutely <laughs> helps ask the question of myself, which is a question I'm grateful for. So thank you. It's now time for us to remember members of our community who've been lost. Birch, who was a beloved child and stillborn. Aaron Lenari, who's 35 and a brother to everyone. Jean, who was 93, beloved father, grandfather, woodworker, and veteran. John Finnerty, who was 42, a father of four, and a karate teacher. Wheezy Smith, who was 82, and an inspiring recorder teacher. And Anne Graham, who was 79, and a beloved great-grandmother. May their memories be a blessing to us all. It's now time for blessings. Matt, who do you want to bless? I would like to bless Hermione this week. I I can fairly confidently say that Hermione has never stolen anything, (laughs) let alone like from a teacher, let alone from the strictest and most intimidating teacher at the school. And she just Mm -hmm. like, like without hesitation... Because the need was present, like constructs this whole plot, quite dangerous plot, and just with confidence walks into the storeroom and walks out poorly concealing the <laughs> items she has stolen, but just there for it. I love it. Bless her mind. And for such good tactical reasons. She's like, you yeah. might have a record, so you'll be expelled. Yep. Obviously, I should do this. I yep. freaking, she shines in this chapter. She does. She does. Doesn't consider that also throwing a firecracker into a cauldron might get somebody expelled. But either way, the bravery <laughs> with which she entered the storeroom, the back room, blessings. Ugh. I am going to bless Millicent Bolstrode, who sounds like she's built to be an athlete, right? Like she's big and she's just like mocked for her size. I have like a lot of tall female friends or short male friends, right? Like this idea that like women are supposed to be small and men are supposed to be big is just so gross and insidious and awful. And I just hate that Millicent Bulstrode is like scary because she's big and then rolling does her this disservice of her just attacking Hermione on a physical level. I just, I think that Millicent really does not get a fair shake in this chapter. So a blessing to... Everyone who doesn't feel right-sized and, you know, we are all right-sized. So what about you, Casper? Who would you like to bless? Well, we've talked so much about shame and fear in this episode. And, you know, Justin Finch-Fletchley has two moments of absolute terror. The first happens in the dueling club. I mean, can you imagine, like, a huge snake, like, going for you? I, I... And it's in front of everyone. And so you're also conscious of how you're reacting to something that's terrifying. I I just really feel for him. And then, of course, towards the end of the chapter, we know that he's been petrified. And so it's the second time that he's encountered some, like, enormous snake-like thing. 
I, so there's like a secondary trauma to it. I, I just really felt for the guy. Mm. And it made his kind of returning to Harry and his apology later on in the story all the more meaningful because of the really terrifying thing he's experienced. So, yeah, my blessing is for Justin and anyone who's, you know, just had a really horribly scary experience that makes them probably very jumpy and nervous about being out in the world. It's not an easy thing. Nope. Next week, Matt is going to be telling a story on the theme of guilt as we read Chapter 12, The Polyjuice Potion. Just a few reminders before we give our thanks. We are in the middle of a big sale for holiday gifts. So go to our website, notsorryworks.com, to get some fabulous merch, including a Dobby patron saint pin. Dobby, the patron saint of trailblazers. And we also have a great tarot as a sacred practice class taught by Naomi Westwater. And you can learn more about that at notsorryworks.com and clicking on classes. Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is produced by Not Sorry Productions, a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. We're edited and produced by AJ Yaramas. Our engineer is Erica Wong. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull. And we are distributed by ACAST. Thanks this week. Go to Bungeon for their voicemail, to Lara Glass, to Julia Argy, to Gabby Iori, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Takile, Stephanie Paulsell, and everyone who sent in the names of their lost loved ones. Thanks for having me, you two. Air? The heir of Slytherin. The heir of Slytherin. That's much punchier than the grandson of Slytherin. <laughs> yes. I, I inherited this because I am the great grandson twice removed of Slytherin. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.